and welcome. Thanks for tuning in to Cloud Civilizations. With the help of guests, we explore human experiences of the digital, getting up close and personal with subcultures on social media platforms, anecdotal stories of digital tools, to people's opinions on digital phenomena. I'm your host, Young Lo, currently pursuing a master's in digital anthropology. This is the fourth episode of our Digital Dynamic Zero series on lockdown in Shanghai, China. I know the previous episode mentioned that this next one would be the last episode, but actually surprised there are two more, including this one. And today I talked to an old friend, Alessia, who is an Italian law student but has previously lived in Shanghai, including through the 2022 citywide lockdown. We first unpack Alessia's personal experience of China's strict pandemic regulations, including navigating ever-changing COVID policies as a non-Chinese Shanghai resident and how health codes and apps have pervaded daily life. We then touch on Alessia's own legal research into contact tracing apps as a measure against public health crises and how her first-hand experiences of them in Shanghai has affected her views. We then end by discussing implications on individuals' data privacy, data protection laws, and the social exclusion and moral dilemmas people face with such widespread tracking apps and data consent. And so without further ado, let's dive into the humanly digital. Okay, so thank you so much for joining me on the pod today. Uh, just to introduce yourself to listeners, could you start by telling us your name, where you're from, where you're now, and where have you been up to? So my name is Alessia. Thank you for having me. I'm Italian, but I grew up in Shanghai, where I did high school uh, because my dad uh, was moved there because of his job. Mm-hmm. And after that, I moved to the UK, where I did an undergraduate in law. Mm-hmm. And now I've returned after spending a year in Shanghai working in legal consultancy to do my master's. Cool. And so, because we are a podcast that focuses on digital things, do you have a favorite thing you've encountered on a digital platform this week, or perhaps a favorite digital tool at the moment? I uh, was listening to a podcast called Welcome to the Metaverse, and they were talking about dating in the VR space, and I thought that was so interesting. So, you know how a couple of years ago when... um, tinder and bumble first emerged we thought it was really weird yeah and now it's kind of become the norm it's Mm -hmm. very normalized and i thought that the idea of vr dating was interesting because i guess unlike bumble and uh, tinder where you do just base your first opinion of somebody on looks and kind of the messages that they send you so whether they're a good texter on vr i guess you get more of a sense of the person's personality because you get to talk to them in i guess the space that they've created for this so the platform provides like an island that's how they were referring to it where you sign up to the event and first of all you have to specify whether you're interested in dating or just meeting new friends so they've kind of made this distinction Uh, and the reason that they did that they were explaining it was because of age Mm. Um, they were concerned that maybe you know there's a lot of underage uh, underage on the platform that might want to access the dating part (laughs) so they're like no you can meet friends (laughs) 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 which is fair enough yeah safety first yeah yeah they were saying they give you like questions and prompts to start like a conversation in the space that they've sort of created and that's how people meet and they can also interact with other people so it's not like a one-on-one date it's like a group date where you meet many other potential partners ah uh, um, yeah interesting oh i'd be interested to see how that progresses and what people's stories are
Right, so today we are going to be talking about your experience of the Shanghai lockdown earlier this spring and also with a more focused lens on health tracking apps. And so just to tell the listeners a quick timeline of where you were during most of the pandemic and for how long, because obviously you were kind of in multiple places and had multiple experiences of various lockdown systems. So when the pandemic started, I was actually in the UK. And so I did the first lockdown here. Mm-hmm. And then after that, when things started opening up in the summer period, I had to self-isolate because I was trying to go back to Shanghai. And as you probably know, uh, the kind of restrictions that were put in place and kind of the requirements to go back to China were very intense. Mm-hmm. And so I was originally set to fly in December 2020. And yeah. then in November, the UK government announced that we were going in the second lockdown. And so my flight was cancelled and I had to move it to March. Mm-hmm. And then... In January, the UK went back into lockdown, and so my flight kept being moved. And in the end, I managed to finally fly in uh, October 2021. So it took me like a year and a bit to get back. And throughout all that period, I um, had to self-isolate, so I was very wary of not catching COVID because the policy that Chinese government was implementing was that you not only had to get tested seven days before flying, but two days before, and it wasn't just a PCR test, you had to get a blood test, Mm -hmm. which would check your IgM antibodies and your IgG antibodies. It's true, because when I also had to fly out of China and fly back in again in September 2021. I also had to test, do the blood test where they basically tested your antibodies and if you basically had COVID in the period leading up to your flight, it would show up as positive, which would potentially danger your chances of boarding the flight. Yeah, it was just very complicated. Yeah. And also because the UK didn't have direct flights, that meant that I had to redo the whole entire process again in the kind of country that I stopped mm-hmm. for my transit. So I stopped through Frankfurt, so I had to do everything again. And once you get these results, if you're negative, of course, you have to then apply for a health declaration code. Mm-hmm. I think that's what it's called. And that is so stressful because until the very last moment you don't know whether you'll be able to fly on that plane because they don't give it to you like a day before. No, no, no. Yeah. They give it to you like two hours before. It's so, true. It was stressful because uh, so, so I did something stressful. similar when I had to fly. I had to fly through Copenhagen and there were some people who were not native Chinese and then they uh, were traveling maybe for work and they totally had no idea because this stuff is not really readily available on user-friendly platforms. And then yeah. you were you finally got back to Shanghai in October or November 2021? So I got there in October, but obviously I had to quarantine for two weeks in a hotel. And yeah. then after that, uh, other seven days at home. Mm-hmm. So by the time I was free, it was November. In January, I started working in legal consultancy and I was like, oh yes, I'm finally free of COVID. I don't have to worry about lockdown anymore. <laughs> and then, <laughs> and then March COVID. rolls around. <laughs> what happens in March? <laughs> We start getting a little bit of alarmed because cases start rising and already what they were doing in Shanghai was that if they found a close contact in your building or there was a positive, they close you for like two weeks minimum. Um, 
And so people were getting really worried because as the numbers were increasing, more people were being locked. Basically, for me, lockdown started on the 14th of March, even though it wasn't like the official one. And by no means, people in my compound were allowed to leave. And then on the 17th of March, that's when they started doing the two-day testing. Basically, it was just incessant extension of the 48-hour testing. So the 40 hours, from what I remember, was that whenever there was a suspected case or whatever in an area, they would potentially quarantine or cordon off that area and people would have to test for 48 hours, two times a day kind of thing, or maybe once a day. And then if everything was clear and negative, then they would open up that cordoned off area. It sounds like for you is that they just kept extending the 48 hour thing. (laughs) And I assume you, you stayed locked down from March 17th until June, early June. Yeah. And so, yeah, yeah so, so if you had to describe or sum up your experience with a word or sentence, what would you choose? Never ending confusion. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> because my compound constantly changed their policies. Like one day they'd say, oh, tomorrow we'll let you go out. And then they changed it again. And then randomly after like 28 days of us being closed, they started finding positive cases. And everyone was like, how is this even positive? Possible? <laughs> how is yeah. that even positive? Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was just confusing. But I guess that's how everyone felt because the rules were so random at times. It was kind of scary because they still maintain that if you're positive, you go to the hospital or the COVID centers. Yeah. Especially because at the time, it wasn't like now that they've made like nicer hotels, you would be put in a space where they didn't necessarily have enough toilets for all of you. Uh, you, you wouldn't have showers. They wouldn't turn off the light. Yeah. So you'd be kind of awake the whole time. Or like you try to sleep, but it- people were saying you had to, you know, bring your own eye mask. Um, one of my ex colleagues, she she went into one of them, and the bunk bed that she got assigned to, thankfully, the person who was there before had put bin bags around the bunk bunk bed to block out the light because they would never turn off the light in the expo hall that they were quarantined in. Is your friend foreigner? No, he's Chinese. They, yeah, I think they differentiate between foreigners and Chinese which even that in itself oh yeah it's really oh just so we're on the subject what that actually means in practice was I literally saw an Italian guy he posted a video where he was positive he was carted back and forth back and forth from his compound because they initially took everyone who was positive in his compound to one of those centralized quarantine camps that was in a big expo hall with lots of people just in squashed in together. I guess they saw he was foreigner and then they thought, okay, we can't let a foreigner be in there because it makes us look really bad. Uh, it, like the fact that they would know that it makes them look bad in the first place. At the end, he got some quote unquote VIP room in this expo hall. And first of all, it's already really bad condition. On a second level to think that local Chinese people are fine to be in it, but not the foreigner. You know, the fact that they would even differentiate that treatment is honestly really shocking. I was going to say that I'm kind of surprised that you were able to see a video because I heard that they make people sign waivers where they say that they're not allowed to film whilst they are being taken to the hospital or camps now. Oh, I don't know how he got away with it. Maybe foreign expat. (laughs) I don't know. He probably broke the, the waiver. So when you were living in Shanghai during lockdown, what were the daily COVID contact tracing apps or health QR codes that you had to use? 
I had some trouble using WeChat because I didn't have a Chinese bank card, which mm-hmm. meant that I couldn't do the usual activities that you can do in WeChat, like pay. So I mostly used Alipay, the health code on Alipay, which is the main app that you use to like go in different places. So yeah. for context, if you wanted to go, say, to a shop or to the supermarket, you'd have to scan a QR code, mm-hmm. which would then tell the app that you went in this place yeah and you'd also have to show that you had a green code which meant that you were negative the definition of what having a green code meant kind of changed throughout lockdown i guess and even afterwards so before i left green a green code was if you had been tested within 72 hours and you were negative we also used this other app we would have to scan our antigen tests Uh. in it what i found very bizarre about this is that they seem to want you to do these antigen tests but they would also want you to do pcr tests in the same day one time they made me do three different covid tests in the same 24 hours which i thought was a waste of resources yeah i remember the rapid antigen test thing uh i think the one i used at least was called Da, and it was a mini yeah. program on wechat where you just basically took a picture of your antigen and then um as long as it was negative you could go down to do the pcr test <laughs> afterwards and then there was another thing which i i think we might have to use when we kind of travel in between districts yeah, provinces or say. or outside of china into china which was called which was a telecom based big data travel itinerary essentially it used big data to track where you've gone through the country i assume the way it works is that if you pass through any traffic coded yellow risky area where there are rising cases or if it's a red cordoned off area then your color would change on that app which would control where you can and cannot enter but you know what i find really strange they're so efficient with creating all these apps like or at least they think they are but (laughs) my dad doesn't live in shanghai so he has to download a completely different app for the region he lives in then the tests he takes there they are not automatically passed on to his shanghai health card there's not a very smooth synergy basically between the way that these apps have gathered data so coincidentally as a law student you actually wrote your undergraduate dissertation on public health or contact tracing apps and so i was wondering what actually made you choose this topic two years ago so as a coincidence i studied global health law two months before the start of the pandemic and i was already thinking of writing a dissertation on a global health matter I was thinking more on aging or other topics like that. Then the pandemic broke out and I was like, oh, this is perfect. I can talk about yeah. the COVID-19 pandemic. And then so when you did your research, which systems or national models did you focus on? So I focused on the NHS app, which is the application that is being used in the United Kingdom. Although I did also look at more broadly the Italian application, which is called Immuni. I kind of touched on the Chinese app, but I didn't talk about it in my dissertation because of the other implications associated with uh, data in China. The purpose of my dissertation was to examine, first of all, 
whether uh, using contact tracing tools was an effective public health measure to stop the spread of COVID. I looked at what ways we could render the app more efficient. And I looked at various different factors and I reached the conclusion that solidarity was the necessary condition in order to incentivize people to actually use the app. Yeah. Because in order for the app to be effective, a critical fraction, I think it's roughly 60% of the population has to use the app in order for it to effectively track the movement of COVID. Because using an app like that, you don't do it necessarily for your own interest. Finding out whether you're positive 10 minutes earlier than what you would if you got the symptoms doesn't necessarily affect you. It helps more generally the society you live in because if you start tracking, people that are positive can stay at home and not further spread the virus so that they might not affect individuals that are more vulnerable to the serious effects of COVID, yeah. such as the elderly. So obviously in the UK, they made it a voluntary-based app because people would only download it on the basis of individual consent with the backdrop of uh, the UK's general data protection regulation, the GDPR, and also the Data Protection Act of 2018. So obviously this was a very different context to how things worked with health tracing apps in China. And so you mentioned in some of our past conversations that after experiencing the Shanghai lockdown, you actually changed your minds about some of your views on these public health contact tracing apps. When I was listening to my parents talk about the situation in Shanghai and the fact that they had zero COVID cases, I thought that the way that the Chinese government was incentivizing people to use it was creating this sort of sense of unity. And then I was in Shanghai when the lockdown happened and I realized that they were using fear. I experienced one of the negative side effects of encouraging people to use these apps because in a way, if you don't have this app, you can't do anything. At the same time, you're scared that if, for example, you don't get tested, then the government will come and take you to one of the COVID camps or like there will be some sort of negative consequence. One thing that I experienced was the kind of idea of consent fatigue in the sense that every time I had to go into a place, I had to consent to giving them my QR code so that they could know that I was there in that place and that it's fine like I will do it out of respect and also because I am a guest in their country but at the same time it can get tiring to do it all the time and also it kind of makes you conscious of the fact that they are able to track exactly my movement everything Mm -hmm. I do when I go in my compound because you have to show your the code when you go in when I go out out of the compound they know what stores i like to go in yeah you know they they know where i like to do my shopping and there is other sorts of implications with that i mean i don't know whether they're gonna sell my data to third parties yeah i'd like to think they don't but i you never know know, yeah you, you never know yeah just to chip in it was interesting about the transition from solidarity to fear or social exclusion 
when I was in Shanghai during early 2021, mid 2021, things were pretty normal. Honestly, at that time I was watching people get locked down in the UK and I felt bad for them because we were allowed to go into work, we were allowed to go to shops, bars, restaurants, whatever in Shanghai and life was essentially back to normal. And so people back then, because life was much more normalized, people were complying to certain anti-COVID measures because they were genuinely concerned or had a care for the vulnerable populations around them, such as elderly people or people with you know, uh, chronic illnesses. But definitely over the course of the citywide lockdown in spring of 2022 this year, that solidarity quickly just became a fear of the consequences of catching COVID. So on one hand, obviously, it's a fear of getting certain personal freedoms taken away because you're mandated by law. Sometimes the Dabai, the hazmat suit guys, would come and forcefully take people to these COVID camps. But on the other hand, it's also this social exclusion because if you didn't consent to using these health tracing apps you couldn't do anything you couldn't go anywhere you wouldn't really be able to live a normalized social life like going into shops and going to work taking the public transport you wouldn't you essentially would be socially dead yeah and i wanted to add two things the first thing is we mentioned before the video of that italian guy that was being transported from one camp to the other and one thing that happened to him was that when he went back to his building the people that he lived with refused to let him in oh yeah you're right right. so instead of people being sympathetic of the fact that you were actually ill because you caught this disease people were treating you like the other yeah and there was a moral blame yeah and the other thing i wanted to say was that in the UK, the otherness sentiment was reverse. So people were breaking the rules because they were saying, oh, I am not going to get COVID because, for example, I'm young. It's them that are going to get COVID. They yeah. were seeing it as somebody else's problem, which is interesting because two very different mindsets. And then you mentioned, so as of the time that we're recording this, apparently Shanghai is potentially going into another lockdown maybe (laughs) yeah i mean i don't know if it's gonna be a lockdown but my parents have been telling me that the people in the asthma suits are coming every day to their compound to test them and my friends have been informing me that they are being locked in their building i think this is definitely linked to the fact that this week there's a general meeting where she is going to be re-elected the restaurants and just generally the entertainment industry have been told that they have to shut their venues at midnight. Yeah, so there's a citywide curfew. It doesn't mean that your compound will not allow you to come back later than 12. It just means that the city is going to be closed. And from what I've seen on my friend's social media, they have been partying on the street and the police has <laughs> come and like complained that they were out too late. So who knows what's happening. I think the situation there changes so quickly. One week it just seemed uh, you're going to go back to lockdown. And that's something that I was really feeling when I was there for two months after they lifted lockdown, that you were constantly living in a state of fear because they could literally come and take your freedom away 
anytime yeah Whenever it's true they wanted and then i guess with the backdrop of these recent more macro and policy changes being implemented so for example geopolitical tensions also you mentioned the personal information protection law which was so i'm going to try and explain this as clearly and as accessibly as possible as someone who's not very well versed in legal things and for listeners who aren't either and information sources i used are listed in the show notes so the personal information protection law or the pipl we mentioned here is china's first comprehensive legislation that regulates the protection of personal information as the name may suggest well supposedly the pipl came into effect on november 1st 2021 It came basically hand in hand with another major data protection law called the Data Security Law or the DSL, which came into effect in September 1st, 2021. So why are these important? Well, on one hand, on a spicy geopolitical note, the DSL is genuinely viewed as a backlash to the US Cloud Act, which was adopted in March 2018, giving US law enforcement agencies the power to basically force companies under the US jurisdiction to give over requested data no matter where the data is stored. And on the other hand, the PIPL and DSL have some consequences for data handled in China. So notice and consent are required for the collection and processing of personal information and there are restrictions on cross-border transfer of data that may affect how data is transferred to foreign enforcement authorities. How do you think that these public health applications that rely on data and individuals compromising their privacy over their data, how do you think that this will maybe shape out in the near future, especially for China? Well, the thing is, in the personal information protection law, they basically said that if the data that they're taking is for some public interest matter, then they can do it. So they've basically left it open Mm -hmm. for them to take your data because they're claiming it's for the public benefit. So for like the public greater safety, good. the greater good. Yeah, they, they, yeah. they love that. <laughs> yeah, the greater good. So I mean, there's nothing really they can do. They keep hitting new lows and it's coming to the surface. I guess beforehand you would hear about the way that data privacy is much blurrier in China, but then maybe it's not affecting your everyday life. So maybe on WeChat, they asked me to give my location because I need to get a delivery. You just kind of consent to it because as you said, there's a lot of yeah. consent fatigue as you navigate these platforms on a daily basis. Yeah. But then in cities, residents and stuff, they maybe wouldn't feel the direct effect of these blurry data privacy boundaries. <laughs> Uh, being implemented into their everyday lives and then I guess this lockdown definitely exposed a lot of when an individual's data privacy is compromised yeah I agree and even myself when I go on a website for example you have to consent to the cookies right I'm not gonna stay there and read every single bullet point or like (laughs) thing they're gonna do with my data and even more so in China where you can't understand the language that's the first thing I don't understand (laughs) Chinese that well in order to read the terms and conditions and actually on this note I really struggled at, at some points to figure out how to use some of these apps because they didn't give you like an English version of it but also because when you don't know something in Chinese even locals don't like legal jargon it's very yeah, much cloaked exactly. in a That's lot what of I was gonna say. technical legal language that 
an yeah. average person would just not understand. Yeah, just people don't know what they're consenting to. And I don't, to be honest, I don't know because everything they show is in Chinese. Is there even like a consent option or do you just sometimes just... There is that? a consent option. But then if you don't consent, then you can't board your flight. You can't go to work. You can't take the public transport. Okay. So then people will weigh up, oh. okay, is this too disruptive to my life? Or am I just going to give up yeah, a yeah. bit more of my data privacy for my life to be functional, then yeah. most people, I did, <laughs> chose the latter. <laughs> Something really funny that came to my mind was that one of my friends, he works for an Italian company, and basically he was in Shanghai for six months, and so the company decided not to set him up a bank account because the only way that he was able to pay was with a credit card, and most places no longer accept credit cards in China. You can only scan with a QR code, and cash literally is never used anymore. He said, I feel like this country is rejecting me because I cannot access anything here. I can't take an Uber because I can't pay. I can't pay in a restaurant. The only way I can go around is with my moped. And even then it's because I go to the small shop that accepts cash. And so he was just basically complaining how he just felt like an outsider and that the system was just kicking him out. We don't mm. want to because you don't conform to our rules. Mm. And it was really interesting to hear because if we compare that to the app, like we were saying, it is like that with the health code. Because if you don't conform to it, you're like an outsider. And then on that note, Thank you so much for your time and no I think worries. I really enjoyed Thank our discussion. I hope and pray for the future of our friends and family back in the country. <laughs> yes, let's, let's hope they don't go to lockdown <laughs> again. <laughs> And thank you, the listener, for tuning in to another episode of Cloud Civilizations. The next episode of this series will be the last one and we'll be talking about the resilience and creativity of online activism. Thank you again and until next time.